I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Daniel Dombey. Today we are talking about not Brexit, but the climax of another huge political story in the UK. The biggest and most comprehensive inquiry into the Iraq war. Taking nine years to conclude and clocking in at 2.6 million words, four times the length of War and Peace, the Chilcot Report hones in on Tony Blair's government record over the invasion and occupation of Iraq, an event without parallel since the Second World War. So what conclusions did it reach? Why does it matter? And how does it affect the world we live in today? I'm joined by Rula Khalaf, the Financial Times Deputy Editor, and James Blitz, a senior writer who has followed this story since the very start. James, how would you summarise the main conclusions of the Chilcot report? Very roughly, what Sir John Chilcot has done is to provide a pretty damning indictment of pretty much all the policy making that was made by Tony Blair, the British military, the British diplomatic service and the intelligence services from the period of around 2002 to 2009. There is no condemnation of Blair for having deliberately lied and there is no statement that uh, this was an illegal action. But his broad conclusions are that Britain went to war without any need to. There was still time to pursue a diplomatic solution to the crisis over Iraq. That the case for Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction was made with far too much determination, without any of the caveats that were really there. And that the policy making by the military fell well short, particularly when the British simultaneously went into Afghanistan after 2006. So it is at the high end of what would have been expected in terms of an indictment of the political process in Whitehall. And Rula, why does this report matter? It's been 13 years. The Iraq war has been paraded as a failure for many of those years. Why does this report right now matter so much? I think it matters for several reasons. One is this was a war that was very controversial domestically, very controversial internationally. And I often feel that the British public hasn't gotten past it in a way. I think there has to be some kind of closure and some kind of almost a healing process. This report doesn't really matter for Iraq. I don't even think that people in Iraq will spend any time either looking or thinking about the Chilcot report. This is not really about Iraq. It's an Iraq inquiry that is really about Britain. It's about the British state. It's about decision-making in Britain. And it's about a huge historic mistake that was made. And to this day, people are still shocked that a country could go to war under false premises with no plan for the aftermath of a toppling of a regime. And in a region that is so toxic, where the politics are poisonous. So I think there has been a need for closure. And several of the earlier inquiries were considered to be a whitewash. You would know better, James. But I think there was a need for the final conclusion to be something that can satisfy the families of the British soldiers and also if anyone is listening today in Iraq, Iraqis as well. 
James, much of the coverage has focused on Tony Blair, of course, the Prime Minister who took us into Iraq. But what does this report say about his legacy and how does it go beyond that one individual in particular? My view of Tony Blair is this. I think Tony Blair is one of the two most talented prime ministers and gifted prime ministers this country produced in the post-war era, the other being Margaret Thatcher. He won three general elections. I think this verdict is a tragedy for him because it underpins that he will never be remembered for anything else. And in fact, his administration, which lasted 10 years, did an enormous amount in terms of domestic policy, and he achieved an enormous amount in other areas. People just forget about Northern Ireland now. Northern Ireland, the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, is the greatest political achievement of, my, of our lifetimes in this country, and people forget about Kosovo. We played a critical role in bringing down Milosevic. His government made a, a very bad set of miscalculations, terrible set of miscalculations, but I maintain myself, I'm, I'm not an acolyte of Blair, I'm just an observer of these things. I do think that he did ultimately act in good faith. I don't think he lied. I think people forget some of the issues around 2003. I think people have simply forgotten the mood in the world after 9-11. That's my personal view. And I also think that he had to make a choice about Bush. And that was tough because Blair's entire upbringing as a politician had been somebody who had shifted Labour away from an anti-European, anti-US, anti-NATO stance to being one which was more responsible. And it, in those terms, it was a very difficult choice for him. And he made a choice and it was the wrong choice. But I respect the fact that he had to make a choice. And so I give him that. I'm going to ask you a little bit about the other targets of the report in a second. But Ruler, I think you wanted to talk well, about uh, the atmosphere at the time. I'm a lot less charitable towards Tony Blair than James is. I think that the fact that he spent nearly two hours yesterday without really apologising in a case that does still require an apology and also trying to justify still to this day why he took the decision, the justifications that he used to me were disturbing. One was his central point, in fact, was that even if we hadn't done this, the Middle East has gone through the Arab Spring. Look at how a dictator reacts. I mean, you can't go back to history and say, you know, well, something else would have happened that would have been as bad. I think the other point that he mentioned yesterday was the mood after 9-11. And it is true that there was a lot of anger, there was a global war on terror after 9-11, and there was a need to stand with the United States. But there was also a need to be responsible precisely at that time. There was a need to be more responsible. And this is where I think the enormous failing was. I think the Iraq war was such an example of a total lack of responsibility. Look, I am not denying for one second that a disastrous set of mistakes was made by Blair. And I think it's ridiculous, as he says, to say, well, I would do it again. We would not have ideally done this. But two things. One, I feel for him in one sense, Cheney and Bush have not been through this process in the United States. They have not had all these questions put to them in the same way. But and they I think should it's, have. They should. There's no yeah. question. But I do think it's unfortunate that one person who has been absolutely hung out to dry on this has been Blair. And I think, secondly, I just do not think there is enough discussion in the UK about which you will know a great deal more than me, about the fact that, yes, we made a disastrous set of mistakes to go into war with Iraq in 2003, but 10 years later, 
on Syria, we have done the exact opposite. We've done absolutely nothing. No, it has in many ways been an even bigger disaster. And in many ways, passivity has been as much a problem as the decision to act. But that is exactly the point, is that in a way, the mistake in Iraq has led to, in some cases, the wrong conclusion. The lesson of Iraq should not be paralysis. The lesson of Iraq should not be aversion to any kind of military intervention. Mm. And I think this is sadly where we are today. So the mistake of Iraq has consequences that go far beyond Iraq. And Syria is the prime example of that. And the people of Syria know that. James, can we move beyond Blair for a second? What are the other targets of this report? How does the rest of a British government come out of this report, would you say? There's no aspect of the British government that comes out, well, no part of it that comes out well. One area which comes out very badly is the intelligence services and MI6. They were providing intelligence on Iraq's alleged WMD, which had no real foundation based on sources who, in one case, were just making things up completely. And when they discovered this, as Chilcott says, they didn't properly correct the information being given to ministers. Admittedly, this was after we'd gone in in March 2003, but even so, those corrections were not made. The uh, chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, John Scarlett, who was collating the evidence, allowed an impression to be given that the evidence of Iraq having WMD was far harder than it really was. The military also did not do sufficiently good planning, as we've said, particularly around 2006 when we simultaneously went into Afghanistan. And there was a general sense as well that the Whitehall system allowed decisions to be made in an informal way which was wrong and which has since been corrected, but nonetheless was wrong. So in many ways, one can turn the question on its head. I can't think of a single individual who's actually come out of this well. It's interesting, isn't it, that we've been debating for a decade about uh, Downing Street supposedly sexing up a dossier. But this report gives the impression of there being no real need because Mr. Scarlett seemed all too keen to sex up that dossier on his own behalf. It was almost like George Tenet providing a slam dunk for George Bush. In the US? Yes, that's true. I think the issue we're talking about here in the end is are officials willing, especially intelligence officials, willing to stand up to political masters and tell them the truth? Or do they overpromise because they are too close to power? And that is the problem. In the case of MI6, I think that the general sense is that Sir Richard Dearlove was willing to give Blair what he wanted. I think there's always been a sense in the case of John Scarlett that he had a kind of close-ish relationship with Alistair Campbell. The person who was left out of the picture and who never got access was the head of MI5, Eliza Manning and Buller. She was very, very clear that an intervention in Iraq would have a big impact on blowback in terms of al-Qaeda doing stuff in the UK, which, of course, they went on to do through indigenous British jihadis in 2005. So she was out of the picture. So, yeah, the problem is that intelligence has got to be allowed to stand for what it is and not become somehow sucked into what political masters want it to be. Rula, could I just talk a little bit more about, or could you talk a little bit more about the international aspect of this? You've said that people in Iraq aren't paying attention and you've said that there isn't any kind of comparable exercise in the US. So does this mean that this is, at the end of the day, a purely internal UK exercise or is it important in terms of setting the world record straight for the Iraq war? I think it's absolutely important in setting the world record. I mean, you know, you have to have a lot of respect for the willingness to actually spend seven years or eight years or whatever it is and 2.6 million words on what went wrong. 
And it's forensic. It's a very, very detailed narrative of every single aspect of this campaign, pre-war, the war itself and the aftermath. So, no, I think it is very important that the Chilcot inquiry, even though it's taken so long, that it was that it was completed. And James, how does this play domestically? We had the rather odd spectacle this week of David Cameron effectively sounding a rather sympathetic note for Tony Blair in the House of Commons. Well, Jeremy Corbyn, was the Labour leader, was much, much more critical. Does this have any impact domestically? Tony Blair is out of office. David Cameron is almost out of office. What impact does this have on domestic politics in the UK? I think there's two issues. One, what are the lessons learned for policymaking? And the short answer is, I think pretty well all the lessons have been learned. I mean, it has taken John Tilcott a long time to do this. The Iraq war started 13 years ago. An enormous amount has happened. All the policymaking is now much more formal around the National Security Council in Britain. MI6 has largely reformed its modus operandi. I can't imagine the UK carrying out a land force operation of the kind we saw in 2003 for years. It's just not going to happen. The British public will not allow troops to be put in harm's way in that way. In terms of politics, it's difficult to say, really. The Labour Party is going through an incredible internal upheaval. And I don't think it's been able to reconcile itself to Tony Blair, not so much about Iraq, but more the modernising, centre-ground approach that Tony Blair took on a wide range of issues. They've never been able to reconcile between their different factions what they think. But I think Tony Blair, in some ways, is a sideshow to that, certainly at a time when really the departure from the European Union is, is a much more seismic event. And finally, Ruler, you've talked about Britain overlearning the lessons. Where does this leave Britain's role in the world after Chilcot and maybe even as Brexit approaches? I mean, are we talking now about a much diminished power? I think after the Iraq war, Britain's role in the world was diminished. But I don't think that the Chilcot inquiry or the events of the Middle East today or Syria will have much of a bearing. The big question for Britain today is what role will it have post-Brexit, that is much more consequential. And that is something that we won't be able to answer, possibly for years to come. Well, thank you very much, Roland James. That's all for this week. Until next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.